0: Welcome, everyone, to Part 5 of Captain Smith and Jamestown, The Real Story, at 1001 Stories for the Road. In Part 5, we'll join Captain Smith and his men as they embark from Jamestown on a voyage of discovery and adventure. On the second day of June, 1608, as Captain Nelson dropped down the James River, he was accompanied by an open barge of less than three tons burden. She possessed but a single mast and sail, and was also propelled by oars. This little boat was bound on a voyage of discovery. The Grand Bay, which the colonists had entered more than a year ago, was yet entirely unknown to them. There seemed a possibility that this arm of the sea might stretch into the western ocean. so much sought after. The frail little craft, poorly provisioned, manned with but fifteen gentlemen and soldiers, was to be the first vessel to explore the shores of the great Chesapeake Bay, to enter her many rivers, and to anchor off her islands. The discoverers were filled with hope as they left Jamestown. They even feared that their commander, Captain Smith, would make too much haste to return. They took leave of the homeward-bound ship at Cape Henry and crossed the bay to the eastern shore. They discovered Smith's Islands and named them for their leader. Upon Cape Charles they saw two grim, stout Indians carrying javelins headed with bone. These savages boldly demanded of the discoverers what they were and what they wanted. After some parley they showed kindly intentions and invited the voyagers to visit their chief at his village at Accomac. The English landed at this place and were treated with hospitality. They were struck with the appearance of the chief. He is pronounced the comeliest proper civil savage that they met on the voyage. Captain Smith easily conversed with these Indians as they spoke the language of Powhatan's people. They gave the visitors some descriptions of the bay with its islands and rivers. From here the discoverers sailed, coasting for some distance in and out of the smaller bays and inlets of the shore, while they could see many islands out in the great bay. They bore up for a group of islands but before reaching them, they were caught in an extreme gust of wind, rain, thunder, and lightning. Only with great danger to their small boat did they escape what they called the unmerciful raging of the ocean-like water. The voyagers named these uninhabited islands for one of their number, Walter Russell, Doctor of Physics, but they're now called Tangier Islands. The discoverers traversed them in search of fresh water, but found none. Still seeking water, they came to the river now known as the Pocomoke. Here the Indians attacked them at first with great fury, but they soon became reconciled to the white strangers, whom they received with songs, dances, and much mirth. The English searched the Indian villages for fresh water, but could only find enough to fill three casks, and this was described in their narrative as such puddle that for the first time they knew what it was to want good water. "'They dug and sought everywhere for it, but could find none. "'In two days they would have refused two casks of gold "'for one cask of even the puddle-water of the Pocomoke River. "'They continued their voyage past many low islands "'to a promontory which was named Point Ployer "'in honor of the nobleman who had relieved Captain Smith "'in an extreme extremity. "'Here they found a pond of hot water. "'Crossing from the mainland to islands out in the bay, they were again caught in a storm. Their one mast and sail was blown overboard, and the barge was nearly swamped with water, which the voyagers worked hard to bail out. They landed on one of these islands, which, from the extremity of gusts, thunder, rain, storms, and ill weather, the discoverers named Limbo. It is one of a group now called Watt's Islands today. The plucky voyagers repaired the sail with their shirts and again set out. Their next discovery was a river on the eastern shore, now called Wicomico. As they approached the shore, the astonished people ran in troops from place to place. How strange, indeed, this great floating boat with its flapping sail must have seemed to the Indians, who had never seen anything larger than a canoe cross the waters of the Chesapeake Bay. Their first impulse was always to resist the incursion of this frightful thing with its pale, strangely dressed inhabitants. At this place, the Indians got into the tops of trees and used their arrows without stint. The boat, however, rowed safely at anchor out of reach of arrows, while the English constantly made signs of friendship. For a long time, the Indians kept up their one-sided warfare. On the following day, they tried new tactics, appearing unarmed and dancing in a ring with baskets in their hands. But the English were too wise in Indian warfare to be drawn on shore by baskets. They believed that there was nothing in them but villainy, and accordingly discharged their muskets at the Indians, who were all instantly seen tumbling on the ground without regard to whether they were hurt or not. They crept into the reeds where they had previously placed their warriors ready for ambush. Toward evening the barge approached the shore. The discoverers landed, but could find nothing of the Indians except their baskets. Seeing smoke on the other side of the river, They crossed over and found several cabins with pyres in them, but no inhabitants. The whites deposited in each cabin pieces of copper, beads, belts, and looking-glasses. Early in the morning, four savages, who had been out in the bay fishing and knew nothing of the events of the past two days, came to the barge. The Englishmen treated them so kindly that the Indians told them to wait for them, and they would soon return. This they did. Bringing with them some twenty of their friends, and seeing that the strangers had kindly intentions, hundreds soon surrounded the boat, each Indian with some present. They considered one bead ample return for all they did. The English and Indians soon became such good friends that the savages would contend among themselves as to who should bring the strangers water, stay with them as hostages, or conduct such of the men as wished to go ashore. These people made mention of a great nation of Indians called the Massawomakees. Binding the eastern shore low and mostly destitute of fresh water, the voyagers crossed by Limbo to the western side, which was hilly, thickly wooded, with plenty of fresh water, and abounding in wolves and bears. The first navigable stream they came to they called Bolus from a particular clay which they found in its banks. The stream is known to us as the Patapsco. Fifteen adventurers had now been confined to this open barge on the rough waters of the bay for two weeks. These gentlemen, unused to such severe exercise, had become tired at the oar, and their bread had been so frequently rained upon that it was quite rotten, though the salt air and hard work had given them such good stomachs that they could still digest it. The disheartened voyagers began in despair of an end to the great body of water on which they floated. They begged Captain Smith to return. "'Gentlemen,' said the captain, "'if you remember the memorable history of Sir Ralph Lane, "'how his company importuned him to proceed "'in the discovery of Moradico, "'which was the source of the Roanoke, "'alleging they had as yet a dog "'that, being boiled with sassafras leaves, "'would richly feed them in their returns, "'then what a shame it would be for you "'that have been so suspicious of my tenderness "'to force me to return, "'with so much provisions as we have, "'and scarce able to say where we've been.' or yet heard of that we were sent to seek. You cannot say but I have shared with you in the worst which is past. And for what is to come of lodging, diet, or whatsoever, I am contented you allot the worst part to myself. As for your fears, that I will lose myself in these unknown large waters, or be swallowed up in some stormy gust, abandon these childish fears, for worse than is past is not likely to happen, and there is much danger to return "'as to proceed. "'Regain, therefore, your old spirits, "'for return I will not, "'if God please, till I have seen "'the Massawomakees, found "'Potomac, where the head of this water "'you conceit to be endless.'" Two or three days more of adverse weather so added to the disheartenment of the voyagers that three or four of them fell sick. Their piteous complaints caused Captain Smith finally to turn about. The adventurers had not gone far on their homeward journey, however, before they discovered the wide Potomac. The sight of this seven-mile broad river encouraged the discoverers. The sick speedily recovered, and all were willing to take some pains to know its name. They sailed up the river for thirty miles before they saw inhabitants. They were met by two savages who conducted them up a little creek. On the banks of this creek, numbers of Indians were in ambush, Strangely painted and grimed, and giving fearful war hoops. Captain Smith prepared with apparent willingness to encounter them in their attack. The whites shot so that their bullets grazed the water. This and the echoing woods so startled the Indians that they hastily dropped their bows and arrows. Hostages were exchanged, and the Indians became very friendly, saying that their attack had been ordered by Powhatan. Ascending the Potomac further, the adventurers received various treatment at the hands of the Indians of different tribes, and what seemed important, they dug the ground in several places and discovered yellow spangles. The Indians of Virginia were seen to use a substance in painting themselves black, which gave them the appearance of being dusted over with silver. Captain Newport, supposing this to contain precious metal, had carried some little bags of it to England. "'The English knew there was a mine "'where this substance was procured "'somewhere in the neighborhood of the Potomac. "'The adventurers now inquired "'for this mine among the Indians. "'Japazaws, the chief of the Potomacs, "'gave Smith guides to conduct him to this mine, "'situated on a creek "'supposed to be Potomac Creek. "'The captain ascended this stream "'as far as the boat could penetrate. "'Leaving the barge with several of his men, "'he made hostages of some of the savages, "'whom he led by a chain,' Which he promised them for their trouble. They saw no indignity in this and were proud to be so richly adorned. The mine was found to be on a rocky mountain, and this was a great hole dug by the Indians with shells and hatchets. The savages put this substance into little bags and sold it everywhere, it being a toilet article with the Indians. The English took away as much of the useless stuff as they could carry. Smith afterward found that this precious something was the ore that we know as sulphuret of antimony, which may be pounded to a black powder. In ancient times, fine ladies used the same substance to color their eyelashes. Several times on this voyage, the discoverers entered great schools of fish, so thick that in default of nets, they attempted to catch them with a frying pan. But, they say in their narrative, we found that a bad instrument to catch fish with "'Neither better fish, more plenty, nor more variety for small fish "'had any of us ever seen in the place swimming in the water, "'but they are not to be caught with frying pans.' "'The adventurers had many quarrels, treacheries, and encounters among the Indians. "'On first meeting a new party of savages, Captain Smith, "'an admirable manager of the savages, "'always demanded a surrender of their arms "'and a child or two as hostages to test their friendship.' In their own words, the voyagers, in all encounters with the Indians, had curbed their insolences and not lost a man. Having finished the exploration of the Potomac and the provisions running low, the adventurers sailed toward home. Smith had some intention of stopping to visit his old imprisonment acquaintances on the Rappahannock. The barge ran aground at the mouth of the river at low tide. The men on the boat could see many fish near the reedy bottom, To while away the time as they waited for the tide to come in, Captain Smith began nailing these fish to the ground with his sword. Instantly all hands were at work, and more fish were speared in an hour than they could eat in a day. Smith, however, in taking a stingray from his sword, was stung in the wrist. At first nothing could be seen but a little blue spot, but instant torment ensued. His arm and shoulder swelled, and the Voyager's, all with much sorrow, concluded his funeral. A man seldom superintends the digging of his own grave. Captain Smith, however, had his grave dug according to his own directions on an island nearby. Meanwhile, Dr. Russell used his probe and an ointment with such good success that the commander recovered and was able to revenge himself by eating a part of the fish for supper. In memory of this incident, the island was named for the fish and is still called... Stingray Island, and that point in the Chesapeake Bay, is still called Stingray Point. From this point, the discoverers sailed home. When they reached Kikatan, now called Hampton, the Indians met them with wonder. Their boat was loaded with bows, arrows, mantles, and furs. Captain Smith's arm was still in bandages, and another man had an injured shin. This was evidence enough to the Indians that the English had been at war, and they were important to know... With whom? The whites, humoring their fancy and with an eye to the Indians' respect for those who conquer, told the savages that they had gained these spoils from the Massawomics. As they neared Jamestown on the 21st of July, 1608, the voyagers, in glad spirits, trimmed their bark with bright streamers and so disguised her that they frightened the colonists who supposed a Spanish boat was coming upon them. THE NEXT CHAPTER, SMITH'S ADVENTURES ON A SECOND VOYAGE In spite of their spoiled bread, their mishaps, and their discomforts, the explorers had been happier than those who remained at Jamestown. Here all was misery and discontent. Those who had recently arrived in America were sick, while most of the others had some ailment, and none were able to work. The president, and that was Radcliffe, was accused of appropriating the public store provisions to his own private ends, and had caused much discontent by building himself a pleasure house in the woods, in which unwelcome work some of the colonists seemed to have got lame and others bruised. The news of their discoveries, and especially the good hope which the voyagers derived from the stories of the Indians that their bay stretched into the South Sea, or somewhat near it, acted as a tonic, Ratcliffe was deposed from the presidency, and Smith was elected in his place. This is June 1608. He, however, substituted Mr. Scrivener and prepared to finish his explorations first. The heat of the summer was so great that the colonists could not work, and the captain left them to recover their healths. All his business was effected within three days, and on the 24th of July Smith set out with twelve men. The wind was contrary, and the barge was forced to stop at Kickatan, Hampton, where she remained for several days. They were feasted there with much mirth by the chief, who was sure another expedition against the Massawomax was on foot. For a while the Indians beguiled the whites with stories of an easy road to the Pacific. The whites duped the savages with lies of another kind, so that each party heard that which they most desired. The English terrified the natives in the evening by a display of rockets. The Indians concluded that nothing was impossible with these strange people. The first night out was spent at Stingray Island. Seven of the voyagers upon the present expedition had but recently arrived in Virginia, and not being acclimated, they were all sick. But six men, including Captain Smith, remained to toll at the oars. This time they passed the mouth of the Great Potomac River, and sailed directly for the head of the Chesapeake Bay. While crossing the bay, they saw seven or eight canoes of the dreaded Massawomex approaching them. The Indians instantly prepared for an attack. The English dropped their oars and mustered their force of five healthy men. The captain, ever quick with expedients, shut the sick under a tarpaulin, and put their hats upon sticks to do duty in place of them. These sticks were ranged on the barge's side, Between every two sticks a man was placed armed with two muskets. Having thus made themselves seem like many, the adventurers sailed down upon the Indians. This display of hats with the strange nature of the boat seemed to have entirely demoralized the Indians, for they fled to the shore, and there stood staring at the barge's sail until she anchored right against them. It was a long time before the Indians could be coaxed to approach them. At last, two of their number ventured out unarmed in a canoe. They were closely followed by the others as a reinforcement in case of hostilities. These two Indians were presented with a bell apiece. Immediately, the others came aboard with presents of venison, bear meat, bows, arrows, clubs, shields, and bearskins. The English could not understand their speech. By sign language, they managed to communicate to the voyagers, the fact that they had been at war with the Takwa Indians. The English understood them to say that they would meet them again in the morning, but no more was seen of them. The discoverers then entered the Takwa River, now known as the Sassafras. Here they were met and surrounded by Indian canoes. On inquiry, it was found that one of their number could speak the language of the Powhatan Indians. Through his mediation, a friendly parley was brought about. They saw the weapons of the Massawomex and the English, pretending that they had fought these Indians, were immediately well received. The Indians conducted the white men to their village, which was fortified with palisades. Here they spread mats for the strangers to sit upon, while men and women welcomed them with dances and songs. These people possessed hatchets, knives, and pieces of brass and copper, which they said they had obtained from the Susquehannock's a mighty people who dwelt upon the river of this name, the Susquehanna River, two days' journey above the falls. These people were also mortal enemies of the Masawomics. Being desirous of discovering the commodities of different Indian nations, the Englishmen persuaded these Indians to send to the Susquehannocks and invite them to come and meet the white strangers. In four days, the messengers returned with sixty of these people. They are described in Smith's history as being a giant-like race, but this must have been one of those exaggerations for which travelers are famous, and from which Captain Smith is certainly not free. It was customary with Captain Smith, who was as staunch in his loyalty to his religion as in his loyalty to the king, to have prayers and a psalm read every day. The solemnity of this devotion impressed the savages. They watched until the service was over, and then began in a most passionate manner to hold up their hands to the sun with the most fearful song. They may have thought that the devotion was in some way connected with Captain Smith, for they embraced him, went through more ceremonies, and closed with an oration expressive of friendship. They robed him in a painted bear skin, placed an immense chain of white beads around his neck, and laid at his feet eighteen mantles made of different skins. The outcome of all this flattery was that they desired him to remain with them and assist them in their wars with the Massawomeks. The voyagers understood the Susquehannock Indians to say that they lived on some great water which, with their ignorance of geography, they took to be either some lake or the St. Lawrence River where the French had settled. To the sorrow of those Indians, the whites insisted on leaving them, but promised to return the following year. In this second voyage, Captain Smith and his men explored the extreme limits of Chesapeake Bay, all her important rivers and inlets, and named many capes and headlands after the members of the party. At the limit of their explorations up the rivers, the discoverers cut crosses on the trees, and sometimes left crosses of brass. The voyagers found the Rappahannock River, inhabited by a people called the Moritakins. Among these they found an old friend of their previous voyage on the Potomac, called Moscow this savage Moscow possessed a rare thing among Indians a full beard the English accounted for this by supposing him to be the son of some Frenchman he was very proud of his beard and called the English his countrymen Moscow was delighted to see them now would fetch them wooden and water and with his friends would tow their boat against wind and tide Moscow endeavored to dissuade Captain Smith from visiting the Rappahannocks enemies of the Moritakins, who had recently stolen three of their chief's women. Moscow represented that they would kill the English on account of their friendship with the Moritakins. Moscow warned Smith that the Rappahannock's would kill the English on account of their friendship with the Moritakins. Believing that Moscow was anxious to secure all their trade to his friends, Captain Smith ascended the Rappahannock. The discoverers at first found some 16 Indians standing on the shore, who showed them a good landing and pointed to several canoes full of commodities. The English, however, demanded an exchange of hostages. After a little consultation, several Indians waded out into the water, left one of their number, and took an exchange an Englishman named Anus Todkill. This man made sharp use of his eyes, being suspicious of ambushes. He asked to be allowed to go across the plain to get some wood, but the savages would not let him. He managed, however, by degrees to move back some two-stone's throws. He thought he could see several hundred savages behind the trees and tried to return to the boat. The Indians caught him up and were going to carry him away when he called out to his companions in the barge that they were betrayed. At that instant, the hostage on the barge jumped overboard, but he was followed as quickly by the man who had been set to watch him. They had a struggle in the water, which resulted in the death of the Indian. A volley of muskets enabled Todkill to regain his freedom, but he was so closely pursued with Indian arrows that he fell flat on the ground. The English fought from behind a fortification made like a forecastle upon the forepart of their boat of the Massawomick shields. This had been done at the suggestion of Moscow. Indian arrows rained around the barge for a short time, but the savages, with the muskets firing in their direction, soon fled into the woods. Armed with these wicker shields, the whites sallied ashore and rescued Toddkill, whose clothes were bloody with the wounds of those who had held him captive. The English captured the canoes, broke all the arrows they could find, except some that they saved for their friend Moscow. They then returned down the river to the village of the Mouratekens, where they presented Moscow with the captured canoes and arrows, and he in his turn received them with great rejoicings and a triumphal march. The next day the voyagers spent in securing poles to the barge's side and hanging wicker shields among them. They thus encircled the deck of their boat with an impenetrable curtain that arrows couldn't pass through. On the following day the voyagers again set sail for the country of Rappahannocks. They were followed along the shore by Moscow with a wistful face. He at last mustered courage to ask if he might not go with them, and he was taken on the barge. She sailed up the river past three Indian villages situated on high cliffs. They were suddenly attacked by 30 or 40 savages who had so accommodated themselves with branches that the adventurers took them for bushes until their arrows began to strike the curtain of shields dropping into the water. Instantly Moscow fell on his face crying, The Rappahannocks! The Rappahannocks. It was some time before the English could make out that what seemed to be bushes were disguised enemies but the bushes fell among the reeds at the first volley of shot from the barge. Sailing on up the river, the white men were well entertained at several villages of smaller tribes. While on the Rappahannock, one of the company, a Mr. Featherstone, an honest, valiant, and industrious gentleman, died, and was buried with military honors in a little bay which his companions named Featherstone's Bay. The other new arrivals in Virginia, in spite of being huddled together in a small boat, with poor diet, had recovered. The day after the burial of their companion Featherstone, the adventurers sailed as high as their boat could go up the river. Then they landed, set up crosses, and cut their names on trees, leaving one man to watch. The sentinel saw an arrow fall near him, gave the alarm, and all grasped their arms. Looking sharply, they could see about a hundred nimble Indians slipping from tree to tree. "'Arrows now fell thick and fast, "'but the English found that they could also dodge behind trees. "'Moscow was most active in his service of his friends. "'He shot away a full quiver of arrows and ran to the boat for more. "'He made so much noise and slipped from one point to another so constantly "'that he impressed the enemy with the idea "'that the whites had quite a company of Indian allies. "'This dodging warfare continued for about half an hour.' when the Indians disappeared as suddenly as they had come. Moscow slipped after them to be sure they were gone. On his return, an Indian was discovered apparently dead. He was turned over and was found to be shot in the knee and still living. Instantly Moscow wanted to beat out his brains. Never was a dog more furious against a bear than this savage against his enemy. The wounded man, however, was taken to the boat, where he was treated by a surgeon who had accompanied the expedition to dress Captain Smith's stingray wound. Moscow's disappointment was alleviated by the Englishman turning out to help him gather up the arrows which had been scattered in the battle. He soon had an armful, over which he gloried not a little, as they wrote. Meanwhile, the prisoner's wound being dressed, within an hour he began to look somewhat cheerfully and could eat and speak. Moscow was persuaded to act as interpreter. The savage said his name was Amarolic and gave some description of his own and neighboring tribes. "'Why did you come in this manner to betray us, that came to you in peace and seek your love?' demanded the whites through their interpreter. "'We heard,' answered Amarolic, "'that you were a people come from under the world to take the world away from us.' "'How many worlds do you know?' queried the English. "'I know no more,' said the savage, but that which is under the sky that covers us, that is the Powhatans, the Monacans, and the Massawomics, that are higher up in the mountains. What is beyond the mountains? asked the white. The sun, answered Amarolic. Of anything else, I know nothing, because the woods are not burnt. The English presented Amarolak with various toys and tried to persuade him to go with them. He, however, desired them to await the coming of his people. He would tell them, he said, about all their kind usage of him, and they would then be good friends, for he was the chief's brother. Moscow, however, advised the whites to be gone, for they were all not. They said they would remain till evening, however. The English occupied the time in preparing for the reception of what Indians might come, while Moscow sat sharpening his arrows. At nightfall they all embarked, for the river was here so narrow, and the banks so high, that the savages might do them much damage if they were caught here in daylight. Meanwhile the Indian chief had been gathering his men and holding a council of war, when his spies informed him that the boat was gone. The Indians immediately set out to follow her, and presently arrows were heard dropping on every side of the boat in the darkness. The Indians ran along the shore with wild war whoops. The English could not make their voices heard through the din, but now and then a musket was fired, aimed where the greatest noise was heard. The savages followed the boat more than twelve miles, keeping up this running warfare. Daylight appeared, and the voyagers found themselves in a wide bay, out of danger. Here they anchored and fell to breakfast. They took no notice of the Indians until the sun had risen, when they cleared away their covering of shields and appeared... "'each man with shield and sword. "'Amarolic made a long speech to his countrymen, "'telling them how kindly he had been used by the whites, "'that they had a Potomac Indian with them "'who loved them as his life, "'and who would have killed him "'had not the whites protected him, "'that he might have his liberty "'if they would but be friendly, "'and as for hurting the whites, "'it was impossible. "'When the Indians heard this speech, "'they hung their bows and arrows upon the trees.' Two Indians swam out to the boat, one with a bow and the other with a quiver of arrows tied upon his head. These they presented to Captain Smith, who received them kindly and told them that if the other three chiefs among them would also give up their bows and arrows in token of friendship, that the great king of his world, whose men he and his companions were, would be their friend. This was immediately agreed to. The English landed on a low point of land the four chiefs received Amarolic and were ready to give the white men whatever they had. They were much astonished at the commodities of the English and supposed their pistols to be pipes. They desired some of these, but the voyagers contented them with more harmless toys. These Indians, who were Manahoacs, parted with the English on the most friendly terms. In their return down the river, they revisited the villages of various minor tribes. They were all pleased to hear of the victory over the Menehoics, and desired the English to make peace with the Rappahannocks. "'They have twice,' answered the captain, "'assaulted me that came only in love to do them good. Therefore I will now burn all their houses, destroy their corn, and forever hold them enemies, until they make me satisfaction.' The Indians desired to know what satisfaction he would require. "'They shall present me,' said Captain Smith, a king's bows and arrows, and not offer to come armed where I am. They shall be friends with the Moritacens, my friends, and give me their king's son in pledge to perform it, then all King James's men shall be their friends. These Indians sent to the Rappahannocks to meet the English. This tribe was now ready to agree to all the conditions, but the chief did not want to give up his son, for, having no more but him, he could not live without him. In place of his son, he said Smith might have the three women the more taken Indians had stolen from him. The captain, wishing to make peace, accepted this questionable favor in this wise. He sent for the women. Then he made the chief of the more taken, the chief of the Rappahannock, and Moscow stand up before him. He told the Rappahannock chief then to choose the woman of the three that he loved best. To the more taken chief, he gave the second choice, and the third woman was allotted to Moscow. This manner of dealing out justice so struck the Indians that their canoes were instantly speeding across the water, and those who had no canoes swam across. They all returned in a short time with presents of venison and provisions. A friendly intercourse was carried on until, in the words of the quaint narrative, the dark commanded us to rest. The occasion was celebrated on the following day by hundreds of Indians who danced and sang, while neither bow nor arrows could be seen among them. After the manner of the Indians, Moscow showed his friendship by changing his name to Utasadasov, the name by which the Indians called the Whites. At parting, the Indians promised ever to be friendly, and to plant corn especially for the strangers, who on their part promised to provide hatchets, beads, and copper for the Indians. The boat pushed off with a volley of shot, while the Indians gave a great shout. They next sailed up the Piankatank River as far as it was navigable. The inhabitants were nearly all absent on a hunting expedition. The voyagers saw only a few old men, women, and children tending corn. Like all other Indians whom they'd met on their voyages, these people promised them corn when they should choose to come for it. The barge was caught in a dead calm. The voyagers were obliged to make their way by rowing toward Port Comfort they anchored for the night in Gosnold's Bay. Suddenly, that night, they were struck by a thunderstorm. Their anchor cable broke, and they drove before the wind. Only by the flashes of fire from heaven could they keep off the splitting shore. They never thought more to have seen Jamestown. At that point, they all thought they were dead. But by the assistance of the lightning, they finally succeeded in finding point comfort and safety. After refreshing themselves, The voyagers resolved to complete their discoveries by seeking their nearer neighbors, the Chesapeake and Nansemond Indians. They sailed up the Chesapeake, now called the Elizabeth River, a tributary of the James. After proceeding six or seven miles, they saw some cornfields and cabins, but no inhabitants. The river was very narrow, and the discoverers returned to the James River, hoping to find some of the natives. They coasted the shore until they came to the Nansemond River the mouth of this stream six or seven savages were busy making weirs for fishing they fled when they saw the barge the voyagers landed and laid some toys where the indians had been at work they pushed off again but they had not gone far before the indians returned and seeing the toys began to dance and sing endeavoring to recall the whites thus friendly intercourse began one indian desired that the englishman should visit his cabin up on the nanceman river he voluntarily boarded the barge to direct them while the others ran along the shore. After sailing six or eight miles, they came to an island on which was the Indians' cabin, surrounded by cornfields. The savage said that the people were all gone hunting. The English gave him and his family various presents, with which they seemed much delighted. The other Indians now asked the whites to go a little further up the river and see their homes. To this they consented, the first Indian leaving them here. "'and others accompanying the barge in a canoe. "'They passed on up the river by the island "'and to where the stream was very narrow. "'The English now became a little suspicious. "'They asked the Indians to come on board the barge. "'They answered that they would "'when they had got their bows and arrows. "'They got ashore, and arming themselves, "'tried to persuade the whites to proceed up the river. "'The whites, on the other hand, "'tried to persuade the Indians "'either to enter their own canoe or to come on the barge. They refused, and the adventurers began to prepare for the worst. They started on up the river, and had not gone far when they found themselves followed by seven or eight canoes. Presently from each bank of the narrow stream came arrows thick and fast. The English immediately turned about to sail for a wider part of the stream. The Indians in the canoes had also been shooting their arrows, but the white men bestowed so much shot amongst them that the Indians all leaped overboard and swam ashore, with the exception of two or three, who escaped by swift rowing. The English soon reached a more open spot, and the Indians found that shot could reach further than arrows. They speedily disappeared into the woods. Having thus escaped an Indian trap, laid and baited with Indian treachery, the English seized the deserted canoes for booty, and examined their own injuries. But they weren't serious. "'Anthony Bagnall having been wounded in a hat "'and another man in the sleeve. "'There were evidently many Indians concerned in this attack, "'and it was rightly concluded that the Chesapeaks and Nansimans "'were banded together. "'A council of war was held on the barge "'to bethink whether it was better to burn the cornfields on the island "'or to try to make some peace with the Indians. "'The conclusion was to set fire to the island when night came. "'Meanwhile the English began to cut the canoes in pieces and the Indians speedily began to lay down their bows and arrows. The savages then made signs of peace. The English told them that they would make peace if they would deliver up the chief's bow and arrows, present them with a string of pearls, and give them four hundred baskets of corn when they came again. The Indians expressed their willingness to comply if they had but a canoe left. One was set adrift. Savages swam to get it, and the whites said they would keep on cutting up the other boats until the Indians performed their promise. But the Indians cried to them not to do this, for they would keep their promise, which they did. Basket after basket was brought, until the barge was well loaded for the good of the colony. On the 7th of September, the discoverers arrived safely back at Jamestown. They estimated that in these two expeditions, they had traveled about 3,000 miles, though it is quite likely that the weary men naturally overestimated the distance they had traversed from what he learned on this voyage captain smith prepared a wonderfully good map of the chesapeake bay and its tributary rivers the narratives of these two voyages given in smith's history are signed by men who were members of the expedition one cannot refrain from admiring in these brave men and their captain the fortitude and persistence that they showed and the wonderful tact with which they managed the natives. In Part 5, we'll cover the third arrival of Captain Newport, the imprisonment of Captain Radcliffe for mutiny, and the presidency of Captain Smith and his governing of the fledgling colony. We'll be back next week with the story of Captain Smith and Jamestown, the real story.